0: You're listening to The Felony Inc. Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. In America, we live in a society that houses the largest inmate population on Earth. And the current cost of mass incarceration via the prison industrial complex is incalculable. So anything that can be done to help curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. That's what we attempt to do, one show at a time, and one guest at a time. Each week, we interview felons and non-felons attempting to make the world a better place for those currently incarcerated, families, and communities affected by the big business of prison. Felony Inc. Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time.
1: Welcome to Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host, DJ Dick Hennessy, as always, joined by my number one co-host, Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you doing today?
2: Hi, I'm good, Dick. I am very excited about our guest today on this, what, sort of overcast, rainy winter has come to Portland, Oregon afternoon. It is nice to be warmed by the light of revolution.
1: Oh, yeah, indeed. And uh, bef- I'm really excited about today's guest as well. But before we get into that, I just want to say one thing real quick. Uh, last month, if you remember, I was a big advocate in saying, fuck uh, Christopher Columbus Day. And as we're going into the holiday season now, I'm going to say, fuck Thanksgiving. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for all the right reasons, you know, just the, the systematic uh, whitewashing of the actual and brainwashing and force fed uh, to our children. Um of the false American history, you know, of what transpired back then. Um, again, I'm up for uh, holiday celebrations with family and I'm all for holidays and spend time together. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of stuff in the news where um, there's a lot of people really upset that there's these new limitations because of COVID that we can't spend time together more than two or three people uh, for family gatherings. I know my family gatherings have been uh, canceled this year. I'm not sure about yours, Meg. Uh, i
2: have as well though i have not been a huge fan of these next two holidays for some time so it sort of tickles me that there's been a bit of a um a bit of a block to them yeah. <clears throat> just terribly problematic
1: absolutely and what's been national news is uh there's uh i think city commissioner in clackamas county who's been Comparing she's saying she's not gonna abide by the by the rules of the new uh, covert restrictions She's gonna have all her friends and family and uh, there's nothing anyone could do about it and she likened uh, The new restrictions by governor Kate Brown to being like slavery essentially and uh, what I have to say about that is If you're upset about not being able to be with your family uh, for Thanksgiving this year uh, Imagine not being able to be with your family for every holiday every year and that's the reality that we have lived and the reality for so many people in America right now. Um, so I feel like it's, it's very important to remember kind of the reality of situations and this isn't so bad and we'll get through this. And now, especially every holiday is a perfect time to write those people that you love that are currently incarcerated and accept their phone calls and do video chats and put money on their books, uh, especially with Christmas coming around the, the, the bend. And so I just can't say it enough. But uh, to move on to better topics, really excited about today's guest. We have none other than George Galvis, who is the co-founder and executive director of Courage.org. That's spelled C-U-R-Y-J, and that's an acronym for Communities United for Restorative Youth Justice. Now, Courage unlocks the leadership of young people to dream beyond bars. We look to young people to lead the way by transforming their community and investing in their healing, activism, and aspirations. George, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, guys, for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Um, typically, George, how we begin this podcast with you being a first-time guest is we kind of get to know you a little bit, like your upbringing, what kind of led you on the path that you're on today. So, if you could uh, oblige us on that, that'd be great.
3: Yeah, I'm happy to share a little bit about my background. Um, and before I do, I actually just wanted to piggyback and um, echo the sentiment of Fuck uh, Columbus Day. We celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I am rooted to this land by my Indigenous grandmothers, and. um And what I might say too, just in kind of the spirit of what the topic of this conversation is about is, you know, um, our, you know, my ancestors, the concept of prisons were introduced by the settlers. You know, there was a clash of two irreconcilable worldviews that took place back in 1492. And my ancestral, you know, uh, worldview was one of, you know, which is expressed, you know, in the concept of all my relations of being interconnected, interdependent. And, you know, people talk a lot about restorative justice. It's become unfortunately a co-opted term and transformative justice. But those are really indigenous concepts of how we actually restored balance when there was a harm that occurred and used it as an opportunity to kind of heal, grow and learn, you know, um, as opposed to sort of the punitive punishment system that we have now. And the colonizer system of greed, gold and genocide, the three G's, which kind of manifests itself in today's sort of contemporary mantra, the capitalist expression of maximize profits, minimize expenditures. Right. Uh, You know, where we value money before we value people. Is kind of a reflection of what that day represents, and then when we look at Thanksgiving, you know that was a celebration of, uh, you know, the massacre of, Pe- you know, seven over seven hundred, you know, elders, women, children, and men uh, during their green corn harvest ceremony, and then the governor of Massachusetts at that time declared it a day of Thanksgiving, and so people need to know what it is that they're actually celebrating. But we do uh, acknowledge thanksgiving, and we use that as a time to really kind of honor all our loved ones and ancestors who have fought, struggled, wept, died so that we could be here and continue the legacy of resistance. I just wanted to kind of begin with that because that's something that inspires me. And, um, and and I'll kind of share a little bit more about my own personal background and healing journey. Yeah, Thank you that. for
2: touching on that, George. That's your perspective is valuable.
3: Thank you both. So um, I will say that I have the distinct honor and privilege of getting to work with young people who have uh, very similar lived experiences to myself. Um, you know, I, uh, some of my most vivid memories were witnessing profound domestic violence and fearing for my mother's life, uh, as young as three years old. Um, I remember my father, you know, at the time it was like the Lou Faringo, uh, playing the incredible Hulk, you know, with green paint on and, and he just kind of bust through walls and, and my father at me, you know, to me at the time, he looked like that television series that I'd been watching. You know, he, he looked like the epitome of rage. I remember his fist going through walls and I remember, um, my mother turning blue and being unable to breathe. And, um, I would say that the violence that was produced in my home, I ended up reproducing on the streets later on as a young man, um, you know, because I, uh, I numb my pain through violence uh, and I look like my father. And so we say that, you know, hurt people hurt people, but we also know that healed people heal people. And at the age of 17, I was um, arrested and charged with multiple felonies for my involvement in a drive-by shooting uh, in South San Francisco. And um, I was fortunate that I was not charged as an adult. I was a minor at the time. And I, um, you know, and I caught a lot of breaks, man. That's the truth, because I know a lot of people who um, were in similar circumstances as me, that ended up doing a lot more time. But I found my way in 19, uh, you know, at the age of 19, in making my way to community college searching for something searching for something to hold on to you know and uh, initially i remember feeling like i needed to keep my record and all of those things kind of in the closet there was like a fear that this could ruin my life my my future employment prospects and anything if people knew about what i had been involved in and in, in, in my past and um and i actually was able to kind of connect uh you know, shortly thereafter with a man named Nani Alejandres, who was the founder of Barrios Unidos. And I took I'd taken a group of young people. I'd started mentoring some young people in, in, you know, in a a local middle school uh, to a a Chicano youth conference in the Central Valley of California. And that's where I first heard Nani speak. And I saw this dude who looked like the veteranos, like the OGs from a neighborhood. He was all tattooed and sleeved up. You know, he had that pachuco kind of swagger. And, uh, you know, and I was like, you know, he looked like a cool dude. He was rocking a brim hat. You know what I mean? Like, you know, just like the the OGs do, man. So, you know, all creased out. I was like, man, this dude looks cool, you know. But everything that came out of his mouth, too, was powerful. And he was really kind of promoting three fundamental things. You know, he was talking about cultural awareness, you know, uh, you know, because you don't really know where you're going unless you know where you've been is what our elders tell us, Right. And, uh, you know, la cultura cura, you know, our culture is healing, you know, it's our strength It's our recovery and and, and culture is resistance in this day and age more than ever. We can say that, you know, black brown Uh, love and joy is an act of resistance, you know, particularly, you know, when you know When we're seeing just the the shift in the way that white supremacy is trying to, uh, you know, um, dominate, you know, um You know in this nation at this time again, and so, um, you know Cultural awareness was the first thing, community involvement. And for me, that community involvement really also entailed community activism. And so I ended up cutting my teeth and organizing first against Prop 187 and Prop 184, which were state ballot initiatives in the early 90s in California. Uh, one was the three strikes you're out. We called that the, the new slave plantation act. And Prop 187, we called that the 187 on the on the on the Rasa community because um, it was essentially an anti-immigrant bill. Um, And what we knew is that California at the time was projected for, you know, to become the first state in the country that was supposed to be, quote unquote, majority minority. And I don't really care for the term minority because I don't feel like I'm less than anyone. I feel like we're a beautiful majority, you know. Uh, And, um, you know, but nevertheless, what it was doing is threatening the kind of the white, you know, hegemony of California. And when you think about the implications of that, you know, California is the fifth largest economy In the entire world, if it was its own country. And so, you know, the political landscape and that shift. Well, there was there was a lot of fear about that. And so we saw systematically Prop 187, Prop 184, then later on Prop 209, Prop 21 and 209 was about ending affirmative action. Prop 21 was criminalization of youth. Two two seven, Prop 227 was about eliminating bilingual education, all these sort of systematic attacks of really just trying to marginalize people of color in order to maintain white hegemony. Because really, I think at the time, California's, uh, you know, um, leadership uh, was really trying to take a page out of the playbook of South Africa. And if you are a minority and uh, how do you maintain social control of the majority? Right. And it's through that sort of disenfranchisement. And and what we know is that jails, prisons and policing are an integral part of that. And that's been one of the foremost ways of trying to subordinate communities of color since Jim Crow. And so that kind of community involvement and social activism became an integral part of my healing journey. And then the very last component is higher education. And so you know, going to community college and taking ethnic studies classes. I'm reading Franz Fanon. I'm reading Paulo Freire. I'm reading Alfred memmi um, you know, um, Robert Blouner. you know, uh, Eduardo Galeano, you know, Vine Deloria, you know, I'm, I'm finally developing the vocabulary and a framework to articulate the things I'd felt my entire life that have been totally dismissed and delegitimized in public education. And probably one of the reasons why I got pushed out of public schools and ended up being incarcerated as well. So that was a super, uh, integral part of, of my, of, you know, just my healing journey. And from there I was able to, you know, find my way to transfer to UC Berkeley and graduate with honors. And all that time I continued to stay very involved in, in community.
1: Yeah, that's huge. I mean, uh, at UC Berkeley, you were a bachelor of arts and ethnic studies, master's in city planning. And then you got the Ronald E. McNair scholar and public policy and international affairs fellow. Um, I mean, we hear the story so many times, you know, people growing up in horrific conditions or really just messed up situations and it kind of just overwhelms them. And that's the last you ever hear of them. Um, what do you think it was that kind of took you and just kind of shot you out of a cannon to where you took it to this level? Cause this is extremely, I mean, everything that you've accomplished is very impressive, obviously. And uh, including what you're doing with the youth, but how did you, I mean, was there a time where you were I mean, I mean, obviously you said you were kind of concerned about having doing too much college and doing kind of straying from everything and focusing on this. But what was the in, like interior motivation that got you to be like, I'm going to get a bachelor of art? No, I'm going to get a master's. Um,
3: I think there was just a lot of motivating factors. One, I'll say, um, you know, my mom was a single parent. Yeah, I did share a little, you know, uh, my father was really out of the picture for uh, a big chunk of, of, of my upbringing. And um, my mother, by her example, really taught me the power of a dream. So we grew up on every federal poverty program imaginable. You know, we were on AFDC That was pre-TANF back in the day. That was that was welfare. Right. Uh, Section eight housing, food stamps. Um, but all that time, my mom was like taking college classes part time and really just cracking away and by the time i was already out on the streets as a teenager she was finishing up a, a college degree in engineering you know as 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 a as a brown woman you know um you know getting a degree that's very dominated you know by just white men and and just a very challenging uh you know career trajectory in general i mean you know she taught me by her example man so that was fundamentally different and what i will say is my mom always pushed education that was fundamentally different than a lot of the experiences of a lot of my peers my mom she uh she cut our tv cord literally and she <laughs> threw it in the closet she created like a, a little like a detachable cord for the tv and i was not allowed to watch television very often um it was like a rare rare treat but what she didn't get us is library cards so i was forced to read so even though like I ended up probably not even having much of a high school education. I was reading, um, you know, 12th grade level when I was in elementary school. You know what I mean? And uh, and I developed a love of reading because my mom took some of those kinds of actions. And so, you know, I
1: really have to kind of pay tribute to the women in my life. You know what I mean? I don't feel you 100 percent, man. I, I wouldn't be here without my mom. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And, uh, it I've just been
2: goes, a mom for 18 years, so I am loving this line of conversation.
1: <laughs> right on me. Yeah, no, we can't thank our mothers enough. And uh, that's just huge that she instilled that work ethic in you and uh, that just intelligence. I mean, and obviously, you know, there's some of it that's learned, of course, but it's got to be genetic as well, I would imagine. Um, how did you get, like... So there's five founders of courage.org. Um, how did you get involved with the other founders? Typically you see like one or two co-founders, but five is, uh, it seems like a pretty uh, dynamic undertaking. Yeah.
3: Um, so around the time the Courage was founded, frankly, I was, um, you know, I was doing a lot of work with uh, tribal juvenile detention reentry, tribal mentoring programs and tribal youth programs. And I was starting to build up a, my own kind of consulting business. And I was kind of forced to do that because, um, you know, I ended up becoming a single father and co-parenting and based on parenting schedule and based on just even the geography, uh, you know, um, to really try to be a fully engaged father. Um, And, and, you know, uh, you know, when their moms decided to relocate, you know, uh, you know, in another part of the Bay Area, there was really probably nobody who would employ me, you know, like in a typical kind of job unless I worked for myself. So I was starting to build up a practice and um, and I remember getting a phone call from a brother of mine who's also formerly incarcerated, really solid brother named Tony Coleman, really got to, you know, I want to give a shout out to that dude, really love that dude. He was one of the founders of um, Third Eye Movement, you know, with Van Jones and others way back in the early 90s and uh, we had collaborated on a lot of stuff together. So um, he hit me up and he's like, hey man, I'm at this, you know, city council public safety commission, you know, uh, you know, meeting and they're trying to, they're trying to introduce these gang injunctions and you know i was like what the fuck you know i was pissed and shot over there you know just dropped everything i was doing and it was just me tony and maybe like two other activists and there was probably like 50 law enforcement inside there and they're trying to at request like 50 you know uh, you know they were were asking for um five you know half a million dollars five hundred thousand dollars to pilot a gang injunction uh, with just a bunch of John Doe's in some unnamed neighborhood. They weren't even going to identify the neighborhood. They were going to identify who the defendants were. It was all very kind of, you know, it, there was no transparency. They were just asking for half a million dollars. Right. And um, and so based on that meeting and what I was observing, because, you know, uh, the proposal wasn't voted on that day, um, I, I formed a, the Stop the Injections Coalition. And started just trying to reach out to anybody and everybody that I thought might care about this issue. All the folks who had been involved in youth organizing, because many of us had organized against Prop 21 previously. Um, I was at, also at that time, I was, you know, I was a proud co-founder of a, of a little something, something called All of Us or None, which was essentially a formerly incarcerated people's movement. You know, to those of us who had the audacity, to want to speak in our own voice. And so with Linda Evans, Dorsey Nunn and others, I was a co-founder of All of Us Are None. So I hit up, you know, my All of Us or None family to come through uh you know and um and we started building this coalition but you know through all of us or none you know many of us who are formerly incarcerated we know what it's like to have our voices decentered around you know when we're the ones who are directly impacted and so the purpose of courage and how courage was developed was to really elevate the voice and power of those defendants in the foodville gang injunction you know and so those were the co-founders mike muscadine Ruben Leal were some of the co-founders um, and then I partnered with an attorney, uh, you know, Michael Siegel, you know, he was a co-founder. Um, and then Kazu Haga was a friend of mine who was at peace development fund and was just, you know, uh, you know, someone who was, um, you know, had also been very instrumental with the Oscar grant movement and many other things. And, you know, and so I had just recruited people who I thought would also just bring, you know, we'd all kind of compliment each other and just be partners in crime, you know, in a good way. You know what I'm saying? On
1: this, um, effort and it, it you know and it, and that's where that's where courage was born that's huge and uh, you guys actually got together and you repealed helped repeal uh, proposition 21 which ended gang injunctions and uh thus being the first city to do so in america as far as i could oh. tell in my searches
3: yeah yeah actually so so just to clarify we became the first community organizing effort in the nation to fully defeat a gang injunction and so as of march 2015 um all gang injunctions You know, were uh, suspended and all cases were dismissed, and so um, that's something we're very proud of. But then, what we did next was we moved on to really try to dismantle Prop 21, and we co-authored a state ballot initiative, Prop 57, and we put a big dent in Prop 21 by becoming the very first direct file state to take away the ability, the very problematic ability, problematic ability of district attorneys to directly file and charge youth as young as 14 years old as adults. And then it also included good time credits and early parole hearings on the adult
1: side. Yeah, it's huge. And uh, yeah, I mean, when you guys passed Prop 57, that ended direct file of minors in California. Um, One of the things I kind of thought was really interesting. I mean, it makes sense to me, but I think the majority of people wouldn't really understand this. But with Proposition 21, uh, with the gang injunction, crime actually went up with the gang injunction. Uh, Do you have any theories as to why that is?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, think about it, man. Like if, if you're, you know, the people who are getting caught up in the system, I mean, more often than not, it's, it's like 90% of it is really because of just survival and, and and wounded people at, you know, operating out of their woundedness. You know what I mean? Um, you know, and so um, if you take someone who's already isolated, already detached, and you further isolate them, further detach
1: them, then what do you expect? You know what I mean? It, yeah. it's, it's 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 an oxymoron strategy, you know? and it's funny because it kind of correlates with your life as well. Because you could have easily, after the drive-by situation and being a teenager, have went further down that path. You know, people have embraced you more, and, and uh, it would have been very easy to get sucked into that lifestyle versus what you were able to accomplish. So, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And, Thank you. And I think a lot there's a lot of uh, propositions and things like this where it sounds good on paper for people that don't really have the understand the inner workings of things and how you know things operate. They just watch the news or whatever. But the reality of it is a lot of these initiatives and a lot of these um, different laws that get passed have a devastating effect on communities as a whole.
3: And, um, Absolutely. These policies, you know, what people don't talk about is sort of the collateral damage of uh, the criminal justice system and prison industrial complex, which is that it no, it doesn't just destabilize individuals, it actually destabilizes families and entire communities, because you can also look at the zip codes. You know, and if I look, if you look at your zip code, you could look at, you know, the high, you know, it, you know, just how, how disproportionately certain communities are impacted. And the criteria that almost everybody has in common is one, low income. You're never going to see people from middle class and wealthy families, you know, in, in communities being impacted by these issues. And it's not like they don't commit crimes or, or, or otherwise. Right. And then. The other variable is that we also know that you can't talk about, you know, class stratification in this country without talking about race. And so it's disproportionately impacting, you know, particularly black and brown communities.
2: It could be argued that wealthy white communities are committing more crimes, more devastating crimes, larger crimes.
3: They commit the biggest crimes. And when they commit crimes, it's socialized. Like when we think about like, you know, all the pension funds that have been raided you know, by folks. When you think about the environmental devastation that has, you know, poisoned the water of children in Flint, Michigan and other places, they commit bigger crimes, but then we don't necessarily individualize those crimes and hold anyone accountable. They become sort of socialized in this way. It's very convenient and strategic
1: in their part of, of just making it very sort of abstract. Indeed. And you never see uh, SWAT teams or battering rams in the suburbs at all.
2: You yeah, do not. You know,
3: Y- y- I don't know if y'all used to watch um, Dave Chappelle's show, but I just oh, remember that, yeah. show, that <laughs> skit he did on like if we treated white collar crime and, 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 you know, and uh, you know the, same, the way that we've treated black and brown communities. And that, you know, that shit was fucking
1: hilarious, right?
2: Yeah. Dave Chappelle is, is one of the prophets of our times. He is amazing.
1: Yeah, that's one of my favorite skits for sure.
2: Time for us to take a little break for an ad and uh, pay a couple bills and come on back.
0: This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com.
1: All right, and welcome back to the Podcast. If you're just joining us, our guest today is George Galpins, co founder and executive director of Courage.org. That's spelled C U R. YJ.org. And George, we were talking about uh, a couple things before the break, but um, I kind of am curious about this youth empowerment zone that you're working on. Uh, recently, I saw that they're reopening of the Oscar grant case. I think a lot of people are, or a good amount of people are kind of familiar with the Fruitville Station movie and kind of the Oscar grant case. Um, I'd love to hear about what you have going on with the youth empowerment zone.
3: Yeah, no, thank you so much uh, for that segue, man. I, I'd love to kind of share a little bit about, you know, we, we I was able to share a little bit about some of what we've been able to accomplish, you know, being the first community organizing effort to defeat a gang injunction and then co-authoring Prop 57 and abolishing direct file in California. And, um, you know, what we've been moving on to is uh, really two things. One is a campaign that we call Dream Beyond Bars. And our tagline is Close Youth Prisons, Build Youth Leaders. And as of just um, a few, you know, really just a month ago, perhaps, We uh, effectively shut down the youth prison system in California through SB, Senate Bill 823. And so that means the Department of Juvenile Justice will be closing in the next few years. And what we're now trying to do is scramble to make sure that there's not a net widening effect of young people being overcharged as adults, of course, and that we're actually building infrastructure on the ground to really create healthier placements for young people who, for lack of a better time, might need a, a restorative timeout. And those would be just like, really, when you do the kind of the, the bed analysis across California, and you look, uh, it's like 90% of our young people who are incarcerated are actually eligible for diversion. So how do we actually build community capacity for alternatives to incarceration to support and serve those young people? And then in the most serious cases, until we're able to fully abolish, you know, incarcerations and punishment systems altogether, um, how are we providing a space that's a healthier alternative? to? Because we know that jails and prisons are not the answer, you know what I mean? So, um So how do we create a space that's a healthier one that provides them the opportunities, resources and services so that they're able to come back to our communities in a healthy way? You know what I mean? And not more wounded. So um, so that's one thing we're working on. The second is going to your question, the youth empowerment zone. So, you know, we we have a vision, you know, when we started organizing against the gang injunctions in Oakland, we weren't just saying no to gang injunction zones that criminalize particularly black and brown youth. But we're saying yes to youth empowerment zones that build on their strengths because young people everybody plays this lip service of you know children of the future you know this that but when you you know if you consider budgets to be a reflection of our values and you look at how much spending is actually happening you know happening to empower young people it's just not happening and yet the biggest line item is policing so when we see defund the police it's not that we don't care about public safety it's our communities are the most impacted around these issues we actually want to see is authentic public safety, and we know we keep us safe. So let's invest in those things: food, housing, and empowerment. And so the youth empowerment zone <clears throat> is building on that kind of framework, a strength-based framework. And um, and so what we're planning to do is uh, open up this space. It's going to be an amazing space, man. It's seven thousand square feet. Above us will be three hundred units of affordable housing, one hundred percent affordable housing going to be one of the largest affordable housing developments in oakland in many many years and on the first floor uh we're going to have a social enterprise uh la cultura cultural arts cafe it will also provide a fellowship an entrepreneurial fellowship for formerly incarcerated people to come home so that they're one able to stabilize immediately that they have income and they have employment as soon as they come home two they learn entrepreneurial skills you know what I mean? So that they learn how to operate a business, a small business from A through Z. And then similar, you know, to some other kinds of programs, like when you think about AmeriCorps that's focused on higher education and they provide a stipend at the end. But we want to be able to provide a stipend to these young people, a micro grant to support some of their micro enterprises, because out there, everybody right now got some kind of side hustle, man. And so some of our young people are starting up t t-shirt businesses. Some of our young people want to start up and become a part of this legalized cannabis industry that you know we see a whole bunch of white guys lining up in the tobacco, big tobacco getting ready to, to benefit from and yet we know that the war on drugs is a war on black and brown communities right and so we want to be able to support that entrepreneurial spirit cuz a lot of them were out there grinding in in the underground economy and so they got those entrepreneurial skills and let's just apply it in a way that they can actually you know uh, be legit and you know and not get caught up again so that would be one component of it the other is we'd have a multi-purpose space and what i'll say is you know my organization has really been leaning in in a lot of areas and even in our inception we've been focused particularly on police violence state violence we've passed numerous legislation some of the most uh significant and profound legislation that's happened in the country that's uh, occurred in california we have sponsored that ledge um so we were able to raise the standard like just for an example recently the standard of lethal force by police officers from so-called reasonable whatever the fuck that was supposed to mean to necessary Necessary when there's to force used um, as an example. But um, as we've been out there, you know, out there protesting with our young people demanding justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and then and then right there in our local communities, you know, Eric Salgado was murdered. Sean Montarosa was murdered as we're out there protesting and we're working with their families. You know we had young people from all across california not even just the bay area hitting us up that followed us on social media and they're like hey man we're trying to do a defund the police rally of march this and they're asking for support so we've been leveraging that kind of support and so what i want to say is you know i remember there being a conference happening way back in the day by the insight group it's a powerful group of women of color called the revolution will not be funded you know beyond the nonprofit industrial complex and what i'll say is like, unfortunately, we were probably one of the only nonprofits out there on the streets with these young people protesting, and really trying to provide some direction and uh, and make sure that they were safe, and you know, and and translate some of their demands for justice into also substantive policy and systems change and engaging with decision makers. But that's some of the most important work that's happening is outside of the nonprofit. You know what I mean? And uh, and that's what's going to really actually facilitate change. So I see this as really being a movement-building space, a space for Black and Brown solidarity, a space for cultural activism for generations to come, and where we can really leverage this 501c3 nonprofit industrial complex to really actually incubate something that's beyond a nonprofit, you know, but a movement, right? And so as part of this quest for social justice, this space can be a space for you know cultural activism, performing arts. You know theater dance music uh it can be a space for civic engagement so that we can impact elections it can be a space for just organizing and movement strategy you know uh sessions it could be a space for building capacity and training for folks to learn how you know nonviolent direct action you know uh digital uh organizing all kinds of stuff you know what i mean and so um you know that's the really the vision for this space, and then you know the last component will be really program space, but we'll have a digital media arts lab. We're going to c- call that the high tech Aztec lab, and uh, you know uh, you know a small you know um, music studio, uh, a program room that can accommodate about fifty people, and then office space. But that multi-purpose space will be able to accommodate up to one hundred twenty-five people and be subdivided into four spaces. So, we're calling this the Oscar Grant Youth Empowerment Zone at Fruville Station. Uh, We've been involved with working with Mama Wanda Johnson, Oscar's mother, and Uncle Bobby, Cephas Johnson, uh, his uncle. You know, since Oscar's murder, we were instrumental in getting the unnamed street in front of the bar station, uh, renamed Oscar Grant the Third Way. And then for the 10-year memorial of Oscar's death, we worked, uh, it's a push-up on Bard to pay one of our local community artists, Rifa One, to paint an image of Oscar you know that to memorialize him forever right there at the fruitville bart station and we're still actually working on trying to get the bart to rename you know uh you know oscar grant you know uh station you know at fruitville station you know and um and so as part of the branding since we will be there part of the transit village phase 2b we're going to be naming our space the Oscar Grant Youth Empowerment Zone at Fruitvale Station. So that way the BART and the city have to acknowledge that we are rebranding the community to honor Oscar's legacy because Oscar represents the young people we work with. He was formerly incarcerated, systems impacted, but he was more importantly an engaging, loving father. He was working right there in the Fruitvale at Farmer Joe's and he was getting ready to enroll in community college classes and we'll never know what Oscar could have become because his journey, his healing journey was stolen from him on that Fruitvale platform by Officer Meserly. So that's part of the legacy and the dream is to say, we will never forget and never again.
1: Man. I mean, it's just such a beautiful thing that you're doing right there. You know, it's an honor of the legacy of Oscar Grant. Um, Just taking that, uh, the initiative to kind of spearhead that thing. I mean, we, when stuff like this happens, we always look for who, okay. You know, that would be nice if someone did something, you know, but you're actually walking the walk, you know, you're not just talking about it. And And in uh, such
2: a powerful way. I mean, I'm so curious, George, where, um, like, what can you identify? And and maybe you can't. It's so it's so esoteric. But what were you born this way, or did something happen? I mean, I'm always so curious. What is the difference between folks that, like Dick says, sit there and wish something would happen, and folks that, like yourself, that not only You're making something happen, but you're making it happen in a way that feels beyond imagination. There's space open in this project, it sounds to me, for developments that we haven't even thought of yet. And I'm just so curious, like, where is that spark in you? Can you identify that moment or that thing that happened that made you able to have this kind of not only imagination but drive into action and ability to get people around you enthusiastic and on board and actually this is a thing that is happening now
3: well you know i I think the best thing i can say is that i've been blessed and i don't think i'm necessarily unique i think i've been as i said blessed and you know i think what happens oftentimes is it's kind of like think about if uh if ten, enough, ten of us ran across a, 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 a roaring freeway with cars just shooting eighty miles per hour, and two of us made it across, and everybody else got hit by a car, it's like we can't turn around and then blame those people. Oh shit! I made it across. Why didn't the rest of you guys make it across? You know what I'm saying? Like I was, I was fucking lucky. You know what I mean? But I would also be remiss not to say that I was, I was lucky not just in, uh, it, but it, you know, in, in the respect of being able to dodge some bullets and some other kinds of things like that. But I was lucky in that I had some elders in my life who happened to come and connect with me, who really mentored me. And, and, and I started with just sort of my mother and my grandmother, you know, as a kid, I know I always just like, I hated you know, when things were unfair, it really pissed me off. Like it just, you know, it just always did as a kid, anything that felt unfair just really pissed me off. And, and so there was always kind of that in my belly and and I think that that kind of runs in my family. My mom was you know raised me to be you know uh, socially and politically conscious. You know she you know she was a feminist and she um you know and she was you know dressing me also and she was also part of the anti nuclear mo- you know movement. She, you know she you know as a single mom she didn't engage really in a lot of the activism, but she laced us up on just like having a political analysis about those things and the little bit of money she did have because we had all hand-me-down clothes but if we bought she bought a new t-shirt it was a political t-shirt supporting causes so i was walking around wearing like you know a t-shirt that had a picture of the atom bomb exploding and it said that's all folks like looney tunes style or one that had like a caricature of ronald reagan dressed up as robin hood and it said Hood takes from the poor gives to the military you know another one of a kid's drawing that said don't hug your kids with nuclear arms and it had like you know so, you know, I had another one of a fat dude in a tuxedo, you know, and it said, eat the rich, you know what I mean? On a silver platter. Right. So my mom kind of, you know, I, you know, she definitely sparked some rebellion because I thought all that shit was hilarious. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, and I and I liked that kind of uh, anti-authoritarian sort of, you know, uh, uh, energy of those shirts that she was, you know, uh, having us wear as kids sometimes. And um, and so, you know, that sparked something. Nani Alejandra is from Barrios Unidos. um. Uh, when I went to Community College at the College of San Mateo, Dr. Zelti Crawford, the chair of um, Ethnic Studies, planted a lot of important political seeds. Uh, Adrian Guzman, who was the chair, who was the director of the EOPS program at Community College, just taught me, you know, you know that 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 wisdom begins with kindness. One of the most gentle, beautiful hearts I've ever known. You know, uh, pardon me, I said Adrian Guzman. Adrian Orozco. I'm sorry, my brain's a little fried. Adrian Arroscos. Uh, I was so, uh, you know. And um, and then, you know, Dorsey Nunn taught me to be unbroken, unapologetic and uh, uncompromising. You know what I mean? And so I I used to feel like I used to have to filter what I really wanted to say and be diplomatic all the time. And Dorsey taught me to just be exactly who I am and just spit my mind. You know what I mean? And, And not to apologize for that fire. So I'll just say I've been blessed to have really good mentors in my life.
2: I feel like nothing happens in a vacuum. You know, we don't actually do this alone. Independent success is a fallacy. And it does feel like the recurring theme of folks that are able to make powerful things happen is the way that they feel connected and supported in the world. And for, you know, I just think about the folks that listen to this podcast. Maybe they just got out of prison. Maybe they don't know which direction to turn. They're looking for that kind of inspiration. Maybe they don't have a family of origin to to get support from and just that reminder that it's out there that perhaps more than you can imagine is available to you is actually available to you. And there are people out there that are more than happy to share that wisdom with you that are more than happy to open up that door of possibility and, and completely, you know, There are spaces much like the one that you're creating. There are places that people can go to access that connectivity and that support. And it's so, so very key. You know, we live in this individual culture that says pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's your personal failure if you don't actually succeed in a certain way. And it's just such a damaging narrative. So, you know, just that little piece from what you said to encourage anyone listening to reach out to ask for help and just if nothing else to be aware that there are actually people out there who can mirror an a better future can mirror a future where you can feel connected supported and impactful
3: i'd be really remiss meg also just to not mention uh my uncle jr leowa and i want to you know uh you know my uncle jr is uh also formerly incarcerated California Indian from Wailaki and Kovalo. Uh, and, um, and he came into my life just shortly after I, I, you know, I, I came out and helped me really facilitate what I would call my spiritual, the spiritual part of my healing journey. I think part of my journey was cathartic in terms of the activism and the community involvement, but that spiritual part was really what you know was, was was so needed because as i'm reading some of these things and getting politicized it was real easy like from going from banging on the block to wanting to bang for revolution in ways that might have actually been harmful and got me caught up again you know what i mean um because i felt so pissed off you know about all the things i was learning and feeling like man why weren't we taught this shit when we were younger i and my homies might actually be alive how many of them might not be in prison you know but my uncle jr you know as a veteran of the alcatraz occupation you know, uh, with Richard Oakes and others, um, you know, he, he helped me return, relearn, and reclaim the ceremonies and traditions that have kept my people healthy since time immemorial. And it, you know, to take time to feed my spirit, you know, to, to reconnect in the Inipi sweat lodge, you know, in the choppy Sundance and those things that just became such a soothing part of me, you know, cause that fire is important, but it's that balance of the fire and the water and that water was very soothing you know, as well for me, because, you know, uh, unresolved trauma brings a whole lot of drama into movements. And so for me, part of my theory of change and theory of liberation, particularly in courage, is really a healing justice framework. And healing is the foundation for what we do. We do healing-centered youth organizing, healing-centered movement building, and healing-centered, you know, leadership development. So um, I, I would be remiss not to just uh, acknowledge my Uncle J.R. Lewa in that way. And my auntie, Stephanie Autumn, also a veteran of Knee and uh, American Indian Movement as well. So, you know, just, you know,
1: acknowledge those elders in my life like that. And, uh, yeah. I mean, come from incredible lineage for sure. Um, one thing about the, what's interesting about the Bay Area and Portland, I feel like uh, there's always been this real intrinsic connection with Portland and the Bay. And, uh, you know, there's just so many different connections I've noticed growing up, obviously, like Damian Lillard and music and things. But um, one thing about the Bay Area is there's uh, just extravagant amount of game and work ethic from people down there for some particular reason, more than anywhere else, and it kind of sets trends worldwide. Um, there's a famous Steve Prefontaine quote that says, to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. And I feel like you are giving 110% your best right now. Like The work that you're doing is incredible. Um, it's immaculate in my opinion. Um, one question that I had was you, not only are you the executive director of Courage, but you're also the executive director of Native Americans and philanthropy, is that true?
3: No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not the executive director. I've, I've, I've presented uh, and collaborated with the Native with Native Americans and philanthropy. I do have a philanthropic hat, but no, um, I, I don't have any f- official status with them. I was the vice chair of our intertribal Friendship House in Oakland, which is the oldest. You know, urban Native American Indian Center in the western part of the United States. It was one of the three first founded in the country, you know, uh, you know, damn near 60 years ago now. But um, but uh, but I, I have no official status with Native American philanthropy other than partnering with them on some things.
1: OK, well, yeah, you are connected. I don't, uh, my notes sometimes get a little skewed sometimes. Is it yeah, true yeah, that you uh, had presented at the United Nations? Is that true? I did. I
3: actually presented at the United Nations in Ababa in Africa. Uh, which is the african headquarters in ethiopia. Um, so my mentor nani alejandres had sent me there as part of a human rights delegation Um, one of the things we were exploring was really around how are we building up? You know nani has really pushed economic development for uh, you know as as you know Um, as one of the vehicles for liberation, right? Um, you know, uh, and and really kind of what you know And when you know, it's funny when you mentioned the connection between portland and uh, the bay like a lot of Barry activists from the Panthers, the Weather Underground, and all these kind of, you know, radical movements, social movements, a lot of our folks actually went up to Oregon back in the days to start communes and collectives because the land was cheaper and it was just more land out there, right? And some of them remained out there. So uh, that's one of the connections I'm very familiar with. Um, and and so in that spirit, I'll just say we were really beginning to have conversations about how are we creating social enterprises, you know, to employ ourselves and stop asking other folks, you know what I mean? Um You know, uh, for for things because, um, you know, it's about self-determination and autonomy. You know what I mean? And so um, in that spirit, we were out there for the first ever fair trade coffee exposition, which, uh, you know, Ethiopia is the birthplace of coffee in one of their indigenous language, Kifa. That's where the term coffee comes from and yet they're some of the most exploited farm workers in the entire world. And then you look at that also in how it's reproduced in places like Jamaica, in Guatemala, in Colombia, in Mexico. And so even the social enterprise, in, and that really inspired me because when I mentioned the social enterprise that we're gonna have at our youth empowerment zone, the La Cultura Cocho Arts Cafe, what I didn't share is that we have a trade agreement with the Zapatista Farmers in Chiapas. And we say, you know, it's, it's organic certified coffee, and we say it's better than fair trade. It's a current communities from Chiapas to East Oakland. And so, you know, um, you know, that's about establishing these old indigenous trade routes that existed since, you know, time immemorial and cutting out the middlemen. You know what I mean? You know, and the capitalist sort of social order and infrastructure that exploits us, you know. And so um, that's part of our theory of change and liberation, too. I
1: can dig it, man uh unfortunately we only have a couple minutes left um i have so many things i can still talk about so i have to kind of pick and choose uh just real quick i just want to say uh, you've been honored by comcast as a hometown hero in 2013 you were the recipient of the california peace prize from the california wellness foundation um i'd love to get into that maybe uh hopefully we can have you on as a guest again and go over a lot of that stuff but just uh the main thing i'm wondering about is for people listening to the show that are inspired by everything that you're talking about if someone was to want, if someone was kind of in your footsteps right now, maybe uh, a youth is listening to this or someone that just got out. um, What advice would you give to them if they wanted to kind of accomplish a fraction of what you've been able to accomplish?
3: You know, I don't think there's like a one size fits all approach. I think every, every, um, every healing journey is unique. What I will say is the best advice isn't really necessarily advice as much as it is like, If I can do anything for someone else, it's to hold up a mirror so that they can see that their sacredness, the the sacredness that they have, that they, that the knowledge and the answers are innate. You know what I mean? The change comes from within. So nobody's going to save you. Like you, all the knowledge you have to transform your life and start your healing journey, it already exists inside of you, in your heart. And in our traditional ways, it always was preceded by a vision. So just visualize where it is that you're trying to go and create that pathway, you know, And connect with mentors. Identify who are some of the people who have already made those journeys to help guide you. So that's what I would say.
1: Excellent advice. And again, George, I can't thank you enough. Our guest today, George Gavis, co-founder and executive director of Courage.org. That's C-U-R-Y-J.org. George, amazing interview. Would love to have you back anytime as a guest, if that's cool. It'd be my honor. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you so much,
2: George.
1: Uh, I can't thank you enough, man. And on that note, just want to send a quick reminder. Remember to write your friends and family in prison. And remember, uh, Christmas time is around the around the bend. If you can put a little money on the books, they're really struggling right now with the covid and all the nonsense. So I'm sure it would mean the world to them. Let's free them all. Oh, yeah. Let's Let's free them
2: all. Yes.
1: Free them all. Yes. Free them all. Yes. Free them all yesterday. For sure. And on that note, remember to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Startup Radio And until next week, we'll see you. Peace.